Welcome back to Brain Buzz Podcast, the podcast that makes science accessible and somewhat enjoyable to listen to. Thank you for tuning in. Today's guest is Professor Sir Graham Thornacroft from King's College London, and he is a professor of community psychiatry, and he does work specifically on access to healthcare and specifically mental health care. This talk was really, really interesting. Graham had so much to say about how people access mental health care right now, how it's changed over COVID, and all of the associated issues and barriers that come with uh, being diagnosed with a mental health uh, disorder or even you know reaching out to seek help for mental health disorders. So, so if you're curious about or if you've ever really experienced the limited access to mental health care that your country has, this might be a really interesting episode to tune into. Uh, if you haven't already liked us on Twitter, Instagram, please do. We're, we're constantly posting on there and retweeting and sharing a lot of awesome science-related stuff. Um, and otherwise, uh, feel free to send us an email or you know DM us if you have any questions, concerns, anything you want us to cover in the future episodes. I'm always on checking those messages, so please do feel free to shoot me a message. Thanks so much and enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz Podcast. I am Drake, your host, and today we have an awesome guest on from the UK, uh, Sir Graham Thornacroft. He's a professor of community psychiatry at the Center for Global Mental Health Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience, King's College London. Uh, He's an active uh, researcher in global mental health. He's co-chaired the World Health Organization Guideline Developmental Group for the Mental Health Gap Action Program Interview Guide. And uh, his research areas include um, stigma and discrimination, evaluations of mental health uh, treatments, servicing systems, implementation science, tons of really, really cool stuff that I know our listeners are really interested in hearing more about. So, Graham, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to have a conversation with you. It's my pleasure, Drake. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm going to start off with a really global question, and then we're just going to get into it, okay? Uh, What is the biggest concern for you right now? when it comes to mental health? Well, Drake, I'm going to offer you two big concerns. <laughs> uh, the first is what I'll talk about as the mental health gap. And the second is the implications and the consequences of COVID. So perhaps I'll take them one at a time. So let's talk about what I mean when I say mental health gap. So let's imagine uh, 100 people, maybe in Vancouver, British Columbia, maybe in London, actually maybe anywhere. Um, let's think about adults to start with. And then let's think of the question of those 100 people, how many people have a mental health problem this year? The answer will be approximately 23. Plus or minus depends a little bit where you are, but it's actually somewhere between 20 and 25 percent using standard criteria, uh, technically either the World Health Organization or the American Psychiatric Association criteria. If, for example, you do a household survey. So approximately speaking, a quarter of people this year have a mental health problem. I'm not talking about you know feeling a bit upset because your baseball team or your ice hockey team lost. I'm talking about people who fulfill diagnostic criteria, serious enough to need help, care, support. Okay, so that's the starting point, a quarter of everybody this year. It's actually a half over a lifetime. So next question I'm asking is, of those quarter of everybody, how many actually get help for these problems? And the answer is in Canada, in UK, in rich countries, about a quarter, there's a quarter of a quarter. 
So that's good news, they're getting some help. Bad news is three quarters of people are not getting any help at all. Partly because they're keeping quiet and stigma we might talk about a little bit later. Partly because they actually don't know if they can access services or afford services. And that's in the rich countries. So next we think about what happens in the poor countries of the world. We could think about Ethiopia. We could think about Chile maybe as a medium, so-called medium income country. We could think about Ethiopia and Africa. And the answer there of the people who have a mental health problem, fewer than 10% get help, often 2 or 3 or 4%, tiny, tiny numbers. So the first big issue I want to mention, just to flag up to people listening and viewing, is how few people actually get help. Why? Because our governments, all the countries around the world, actually pay little or no uh, uh, attention or priority towards mental health. So that's one thing. That's what I'd call, if you like, the quantitative gap, actually how few people get help. But also I want to mention something called the qualitative gap which is for people who do get treatment or care, maybe in um, a mental health clinic, but also maybe in a big or remote or dehumanized asylum or institution. What about the quality of care that people get? And this varies between, you know, fair in some countries and abysmally poor in many countries, where it'd be hard to tell the difference between a psychiatric uh, facility and a prison, in fact. So there are two big gaps here. One is the quantity gap of so few specialists um, providing mental health care. And the second is the quality gap of what actually happens in mental health services. So the next issue I want to mention right now, where we are, we're speaking, well, we don't know if we're halfway through, but amid a global pandemic of COVID, is what's happening with mental health around the world with COVID. Well, two things are happening and none of them, neither of them good. First of all, we're getting more and more data to show that the rates of mental ill health are actually going up over the last 12, 15 months. Why? Well, there's people in the community who may be isolated or in lockdown or quarantine or isolation. That doesn't help. Secondly, there are people who are working, for example, in health and social care services, where some studies show that a half or more of doctors and nurses, for example, have a mental health problem, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, because of the stress and strain of their really heavy load they're carrying. But also the complications of people who have had COVID infection, which include neurological and psychiatric implications. So by many measures right now, the, the jargon is burden, but that's an unpleasant word. The impact of mental health problems on our populations is greater than it was pre-COVID. So is it true that services, systems, governments are stepping up to meet that need Probably not. We don't have much data yet, but it looks like uh, in many countries, health systems are selectively decommissioning mental health care to transfer staff, to transfer resources to COVID or to physical health care. So we're seeing an increase in the need and a decrease in the supply of help. So you asked me about one issue, Drake, but I, I'm afraid I've offered you two key issues right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that those are really, those are big concerns for sure. And so what do you think the is it the isolation that you think is the main driver in this that or like the lack it's first off it's the lack of uh you know available care like you said but like this is a really ex a unique experience for a lot of people and that isolation definitely can't be helping a lot of people sure so um, we need to think about a whole series of factors happening at the same time where mm -hmm. essentially nearly all of them are adverse so Social isolation is one critical issue. Now, it's, it's central to how most countries, most governments are trying to respond to this terrible pandemic, saying stay apart, 
but also stay physically apart from many or indeed all other people if you're vulnerable or if you're infected and so on and actually quarantined. And one of the key things is not necessarily just going to see a counsellor or a therapist, but actually ordinary, everyday social networks, community resources to build resilience. Who do you talk to? Who do you share your worries with? So that's one. Another thing is that a lot of people actually don't want to go out, even if they can. You know, a lot of people will not, will be actively avoiding going to a clinic or a hospital because they think, hey, you know what? I'm going to catch the disease if I go there. And they may be right. Certainly in the first two waves in my country, uh, healthcare facilities, one of the most common places to actually get the condition. If you go to a clinic, you may be admitted to a hospital or something else, and then you may actually, you know, come out and we hope not succumb to the, to the virus. So there may be good reasons for that. But let's also look about some of the probable longer term implications, for example, from unemployment. Now, this is selectively hitting in many of the more industrialized countries, younger people who've been on, we call it gig economy or temporary contracts and so on, especially working in the catering and hospitality industries where they've been more or less wiped out during lockdown. So that group of people uh, have often had you know, loss of work, maybe with furlough protection for some time. But it's not just unemployment, it's also economic insecurity or doubt about your economic future and your career. And both of those in the medium term and in the longer term, in previous recessions and periods of austerity, have been associated with suicide. Now, the data so far, and there have been some studies of this, have not shown in 2020 uh, increased rates of suicide consistently across different countries of the world. But often it takes a year or two for that to sort of work its way through the system. So another big danger, I think, from this pandemic is in the medium term is higher suicide rates. Absolutely. I mean, financial insecurity, worry about the future, those are all things that can have significant impacts on someone's uh, mental health. And then add on top of that any mental health disorders that may be pre-existing. It's not a good recipe. Yeah. So let's just talk a little bit maybe about who's having experiencing the greatest impact in mental health terms of the pandemic. And from several countries now, actually from different high, medium and low income countries around the world, there's a fairly consistent picture. Uh, it, most of the data, as usual, come from high income countries, which is that there are several subgroups um, having worse impact. So one is women, especially young women. Two are um, adults looking after young children. Uh, three are the people living alone, including the elderly. And then there's four people with um, you know, insecure or lack of um, employment. But also there's teenagers and young people. So we've seen in several studies in different parts of the world, rates of mental illness double or triple during the last year or so um, because of the impact. And it's not just that they've got mental health problems, they're also, for many people, having uh, limited and impaired educational opportunities, being off school and schooling, maybe poor internet and so on. All sorts of reasons stacking up. Uh, and the bigger picture, you know, um, sad to say, is that those groups who are disadvantaged are being further disadvantaged. There's an amplification effect from COVID's impact. And, and, and all these things are leading to this with the added implication that you can't necessarily seek therapy whenever you are having these these crises well, as readily or is that is the online is online therapy i guess is what i'm asking is that is that doing the job or yeah. replacing it well well um i have two main hats one is i do research at the university do teaching but also i'm a, a consultant psychiatrist like an attending and so i see patients you know, every week in fact i work in a team for people in the first episode of psychosis and bang overnight last march of last year um, I didn't go into the clinic. So all my work is now done you know, online. Initially, it was a you know, phone, Skype, you name it. It's now we use Microsoft Teams usually. So it's nearly all video consultations. And initially, a lot of people thought, 
you know, this is going to be a poor second best. And there's no substitute for being, seeing people in, you know, in the flesh. Uh, quite often in our work, we visit people at homes to make an assessment or to liaise with family as well. But recently we've done a, a very detailed piece of work looking at the experience of remote consulting from the staff and from the patient's point of view. And it turned out a little bit differently to what we expected. Many patients said that there were real advantages to online consulting, like not having to spend time and money getting to a centre and back. Um, like you, you could talk, you know, from your home if you're feeling anxious about going out or get, being on a bus and catching the, you know, the virus. You don't have to do that. If you have social anxiety or agoraphobia and you really don't feel like going out anyway, you don't need to. And interestingly enough, what we're finding, some of the pilot data, is that the rate of people not attending appointments has gone down a lot. So more people are attending their appointments through remote consulting than we had before in, in person. Now, it's not, it's not the panacea. And I find that if you have already met somebody, you know, in person, then you can actually continue the relationship better, you know, by video and so on. It's actually hard to get to know somebody, you know, as we're speaking now over a screen. So that's from the, um, if you like, from the patient point of view, and that many of we're finding are reasonably satisfied with these types of um, you know, remote contact. The story from the staff point of view is less satisfactory, and more often we're finding that mental health staff professionals are more dissatisfied with remote. They're not getting the same job satisfaction by just talking to a screen all the time. So we see a discrepancy. And then we're now facing interesting questions planning for the future about, you know, in the next stages or beyond COVID about, you know, what form of hybrid service will we want to offer? And do we give patients a choice? Do we give staff a choice? How do you negotiate that? So it's very interesting now. We're seeing different modes come into play, but I think we're learning. And if you'd said to me, you know, 15, 16 months ago, could a whole service switch to online, you know, within a year or two, I'd say, well, implement it very difficult and practitioners are very resistant to change. But it happened, bang, just like that. Yeah, <laughs> it really did. And it, it kind of had to, right? It had to happen really quickly. Yeah. Uh, it's not like you had much of a choice. No, no. Uh, it, it's, so that's really interesting. That's really interesting information, though, Graham, that, you know, that, that the users are really benefiting from it in certain ways and i can definitely see the sentiment where you know you don't have to travel to a place for an hour you can yeah. you can access it really easily but also the point that you know getting in getting that connection and that rapport through video if you hadn't met uh, a psychiatrist or a therapist at that point i could see where that would be really tough as well yeah yeah so let me give one example so um quite often um, we'd have maybe 300 patients with our team at any one time. There'd be a handful of people who are really not very well. And there might easily be a crisis that comes up. And the you know, a person we call a nurse or a you know, social worker would want a doctor to assess the person right now just to see what we have to do. If that doctor's already got a clinic or a number of appointments lined up, they, they, just ha they can't find time to get in the car, drive half an hour, see the patient, drive half an hour back. They don't have that space in the day. But if the request is, can you spend 15 minutes on a video link now because we have a crisis or an incipient crisis, and that may well be possible. So the service can be more flexible. In fact, we have a sort of hybrid system where people we call case managers or care coordinators, who might be a nurse, might go out to see the patient at home, assess the situation, and then bring in the doctor via video link, especially if the nurse is 20-something and at a low risk and the doctor's 50 or 60-something like me and doesn't really want to be in contact with people who yeah. may infect or you know, <laughs> disable them. And so you can actually have different configurations of trying yeah. to deliver support and care and treatment. Okay. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. I haven't even thought of that. Uh, so, so I mean, there, there is some 
service benefits, it seems that we've learned a lot from what we can provide in the last year or so um, from the pandemic, which is, you know, finally one one positive <laughs> that we can take from it. So so that's good. I, I'm curious because I've always, you know, I'm, I'm not actually in the mental like health. I, everybody assumes because you do psychology, you know all about mental health. And that is definitely not the case with me and a lot of other researchers. Um, I do relationships and sexuality research. So what are the most common types of mental health disorders um, out there? I mean, across, according to the WHO, if, if you want to do that. Um, and what are the most common for, you know, needing services and, uh, and you know, needing um, to access these kind of services? Okay, should I, should I start fairly simply? Yeah, let's start, let's start simply for me, please. <laughs> okay, so let's see we know nothing and then we'll take it step by step. So um, Let's think about the whole range of mental health problems, for example, as defined by the World Health Organization. And one starting point is to cluster into two groups, so-called common mental disorders and severe mental illnesses. So we'll start with the severe side. So this would typically include conditions, for example, called schizophrenia, different other psychotic conditions like bipolar disorder. There's actually a hybrid called schizoaffect disorder delusional disorder, and sometimes people include what's called major depressive disorder, that's really severe depression in the severe mental illness category. So if you take those as a whole, you'll be talking about up to 5% of the population in a year. So about half a percent for bipolar, about half a percent for schizophrenia, there are other psychoses and so on. Um, for major depression, we've just done a a big study where I was collaborating colleagues at Harvard, it's called World Mental Health Surveys. We found that 4.6% of people across about 20 countries have major depressive disorder in a year. So it's maybe four, five, six, seven percent have these severe mental illnesses. Um, we should actually pause and not think that these are terrible and chronic and you know you never recover. Uh, many people with psychosis do recover and recover completely and never have a further episode. Many with people with depression recover, may have a further episode, but many um, can actually manage that. Um, properly treated, people with bipolar can stay well for a long time, maybe an occasional relapse, but often the prognosis is very good. So although it's called severe, we shouldn't be sort of miserableists about this. The other category, um, just starting off in simple terms, is called common mental disorders. So this would include everything else, basically. So it include depression, anxiety, which often go together, panic attacks, phobias, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, personality disorders, what's called substance use disorders, that's either drug or alcohol dependence or addiction and so on. And broadly speaking, they would come to about 20% of the population. Now, if you add on other conditions, for example, dementia, for example, um, suicide attempts or deliberate self-harm, um, other so-called atypical conditions where you might have chronic you know, stomach pain, but in fact, it's because you're expressing depression that way. If you add all those together, it can come up to about 30, 33% of everybody with one of these conditions every year. So it depends on how widely or narrowly you define it, but it's from between a quarter and a third of all of us. And if you ask the question, how many of us know somebody directly who has or who has had a mental illness, the answer is about three quarters of us. Um, for example, when I was a tiny kid, I was three years old, my mother had a severe episode of depression never been depressed before, came out of the blue. She was working as a nurse, um, but became very deeply depressed quite quickly. Um, she had various tablets from her family doctor, didn't help. She then had something that was quite unusual. She had electroshock therapy as a day patient. She'd go to a psychiatric hospital, um, you know, kneel by mouth beforehand, have the shock, 
come around, have a sort of sugary drink or porridge and so on, and come home again that day. With a couple of months, she recovered completely, and she never uh, became seriously depressed again. So many, many of us have either our own personal experience or direct experience in the members of our family of mental ill health. So it's not a minority issue. It's really affecting so many of us everywhere. Yeah. And Graham, I have a question for you then. So those numbers are alarming. That's a lot of people, right? So, so a quarter to a third, so one in three or one in four people uh, will be experiencing it at that time or in that year. My question is, in that number, is that diagnosed by like clinically diagnosed or just like a, an estimate towards like, because I know a lot of these probably are undiagnosed, right? Yeah, sure. So the probably the best way to find out about so-called true prevalence, you know, how many people actually have a problem, some mental health problem, mm. is household surveys. So you literally go knocking on doors or it depends where you are and if the, door, the house has a door or not, but you go house to house. And you say, you know, we're doing this study. We'd like to find out just how common mental issues are. You know, if you'd like to take part, here's a consent procedure. Your information will be anonymous. And so a colleague of mine, Ron Kessler, has read such, led such a huge series of studies now in now over 25 countries around the world. Uh, over 50,000 people have been involved in the study. And then you can find out, you know, if people meet criteria, for example, for depression, for example, for anxiety disorders. So you know that's, if you like, the true prevalence. Usually it's measured over the year. So you could ask about you know, today, are you depressed or in the last month or the last year or ever, so-called lifetime ever. But often it's over the last year or so. So that's the starting point. And then you say, you know, have you ever had any help for that? And then you have to be careful about, you know, when you were depressed and did you get help and so on. But the answer is that, and as I mentioned a little bit earlier, three quarters of the people who do have or have had you know, a clear-cut problem have never had any help. So you can actually then compare so-called true prevalence if the person's got a problem and then the treated prevalence if people have had help for those issues. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot more sense because I know a lot of people, um, a lot of people are, are unsure of it and also un, uh, not confident in whether or not they should be going and seeking help yeah. for these things. So there's yeah. a lot of undiagnosed uh, cases okay. out there, right? So maybe we talk a bit then about help seeking and, you know, if and when and how. Yeah. So let's take um, let's take one example. He is a man of about 40, got a steady job, maybe two kids, you know, regular sort of guy. And his wife notices that things have changed a little bit. Maybe he's been drinking more recently, maybe putting on weight, maybe irritable, maybe not sleeping so well, maybe a bit short and temperamental and so on. So maybe you say, I don't know, midlife crisis or, you know, men or whatever. But also maybe you say, wait a minute, these the features of the depression. Now, people think depression is, you know, sitting in a quiet, dark corner, crying and head down and head in hands and so on. But depression actually affects many people in many different ways. A lot of people have really bad, sometimes even crippling physical symptoms. It can be ache joints, tiredness, abdominal cramps, things like that. Some people have a profound loss of hope um, in the world. And in fact, you know, the famous psychologist Beck, you may have come across, talked about the so-called depressive triad, which is helplessness, hopelessness and worthlessness. And those often are present, but it's also quite culturally dependent. And in some cultures, the idiom, if you like, expressing distress, maybe through physical complaints, maybe complete, you know, complete tiredness and fatigue or body aches and pains and so on. It depends where you are. Or also it depends on your cultural background with you know, international travel and migration and so on as well. 
So one thing is to be able to recognize a possible mental disorder. So let's say the wife says, you know, hey, you know, Bob, um, maybe you should see the family physician. It could be you have some you know, emotional mm. difficulties. Now, do you think it's going to go? Not likely. <laughs> well, uh, maybe, but men generally consult mm. less than women. And, you know, for that reason, we've got lots of programs now of men who are either celebrities in the cinema or the television or sports athletes and so on, sort of coming out and saying, you know, I've had difficulties, especially athletes where they're on the road a lot. They've got huge performance expectations and anxiety. They may have injuries, never know if they'll come back. I mean, just today, when we're speaking in the beginning of June, I've been reading about Naomi Osaka you know, um, a, a real champion in the field of tennis. And you may have come across the story whereby she's actually chosen to withdraw from the French Open because she said, you know, I find doing these post-match interviews really stressful and it has a negative impact on my mental health. And how did the uh, French Open organisers respond saying, you're contractually obliged, you don't do this, we're going to fine you or worse. And she says, well, you know, Hey, listen, guys, I've had some severe depression problems and I'm, I'm gonna, not going to play in this tournament. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons whereby people will um, find it difficult to speak openly about these issues. So I've spoken about some of the barriers to help seeking, but stigma is one of the biggest ones. So let's take another example. This is a patient of mine and he has bipolar disorder. Uh, he wants to find a girlfriend. He's a bit lonely, but he doesn't want to have to conceal the fact that he has a mental condition. So he has a choice. You know, he can say nothing about it, but then he won't get support if he needs it. Or he can say something about his condition to you know, a woman he's dating. Maybe she rejects him or laughs at him or humiliates him. So he then decided on um, a sort of toe-in-the-water, step-by-step approach, something I would call conditional disclosure. So, for example, he might get a newspaper or maybe a, uh, you know, a, a website and say, hey, look, here's a story. Somebody's had depression. You know, they were, well, like uh, Simone Biles has spoken, you know, the world-beating champion um, gymnast has said she's got ADHD and somebody's spoken out. And then he turns to the, you know, the, 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 the possible girlfriend and says, what do you think? Now, she says, yeah, well, you know, my mom had depression. It's very common. You can get treated these days. There's no shame in it. And maybe next time he says, well, you know, I've had some issues. If, on the other hand, the girl sitting next to him says, or the young woman says, they're mad, these crazy people, you know, there's so many around and it's dangerous in public. Well, maybe that relationship's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. Definitely. That's a good way to do it. I think that's like, you know, testing their, their, their beliefs and their expectations. And then kind of once the water's a little bit warm, you can try and jump in. <laughs> a little bit more, a little bit more. Or I'll give you another example. Um, I mentioned I work with people who are in, who had a, you might call it first break or a first episode of psychosis. So many of them are in their early working career or at college. And a young man recently was working in a timber yard. So he lifts up you know, wood and gravel and cement and things and loads it into trucks. And he was away from work for about four or five months when he was not well. But he, he wasn't sure what to say to his workmates when he went back to work. He had a so-called graded return to work, went back three days a week, then four days a week, then five days a week. So we worked with him to rehearse his narrative or his storyline. And the storyline he decided to go with was, if somebody asked him, he would say, I've taken a break from my work to think about my career. Now, that was actually true, but it was only a, a small part of the truth. So... Some of the guys at Jumbo Yard said, hey, good to see you again and good to see you back and, you know, catch this sack of cement or something. But some said, hey, where have you been? He said, I've been 
break from my work to think about my career. They said, okay, right, catch the swings. <laughs> and that was good enough. But more difficult was the question, you know, should I actually confide in my boss, my line manager? Um, because if I'm feeling unwell again, I may need some time off or some adjustment accommodations or some help. And he did. He took the risk of telling the boss quite a bit, again, in a pre-rehearsed way to accentuate positive, to accentuate recovery. And the guy turned out to be a gem. He understood. He said, no problem. You know, that's confidential with me. And, you know, what can I do to help you get back to work? So increasingly, I find that there is more understanding, including in bosses and managers, about how common mental health problems are and the need to support everybody uh, who may need support from time to time. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's really interesting uh, perspective for people that don't know what's going on, you know, with therapists and psychiatrists, like you're, you're actually, you're having to train somebody to avoid the stigma, which I, you wouldn't think intuitively would be something that's necessary, but, and it sucks that it is, um, but really important to not yeah. impact their careers, their, their social lives, because it's so prevalent. I mean, I think the touchdown here in terms of stigma is what people with mental health problems say about their experience. And many will say is that healthcare staff are quite often more of uh, the problem than the solution. And especially they find that's the, the case in uh, emergency department settings and in primary healthcare settings. So people, for example, that may uh, overdose from time to time may report they're treated you know, brusquely, if not contemptuously, by staff. Now, from the staff's point of view, you see someone coming back again and again with an overdose or cutting of the wrist. It's very frustrating because they're not getting better, they're not going home, and you know, that's the end of it. From the patient's point of view, they're so feeling so bad that they're actually taking this drastic step of, you know, for example, cutting themselves, and then they're treated badly by the staff, which just you know, adds insult to injury, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's also an important thing, too, is that, you know, not all healthcare providers are looking at the same things and will treat mental health the same way. Uh, and some some do some don't no, it's no. a mixed bag right and i think a lot of people it's not necessarily a mis misconception but it's definitely something that where people would expect that your family doctor would understand everything that's going on with your mental health and they, it's not always the case no and, and typically i mean i'm not so sure about your system in our system the the family physicians would often work in group practices there might be four five six doctors you know several nurses other practitioners and quite often of those doctors this is the primary care centers there'd be one he would have a real active interest in mental health issues. In fact, we call them gypsies, which is GP with a special interest. And they have further training. And within a practice, you know, another one finds a person with their mental health problems. They, they refer internally to that doctor for special assistance. And somebody else is interested in dermatology, so they get the internal referrals and so on. Right. But um, one of the facts that seems to work is that sometimes doctors can be more stigmatizing than the average person in the street, a member of the public. And there may be, uh, you know, at least one explanation for that, which is called the physician's bias. So let's imagine I'm a psychiatrist working for 10 or 20 years, you know, as I have been actually more. <laughs> who do I see? I see people who have come, who referred to me. And over time, the people I see most are those who don't get better. Because if they get better, I discharge them, gone away again. Right. People I see more over time are people with the so-called worst outcome who are really unwell and are not getting better. So over time, if I generalize from the patients I see, which I'm likely to, I will think people with psychosis, you know, so few get better. I've seen these people for years. Yeah. And an extreme version of this can be people working in forensic settings who are seeing mentally disordered offenders, because all they see are people at the, the most sharp end of the wedge who are extremely unwell and who may have committed a crime as well. So the physician's bias tends to make 
um, experienced healthcare practitioners, including doctors, uh, more negative over time about the outcome for the patients they see. And in fact, in many categories of people, the opposite is the case because most people get better, most people are discharged and they go on and live their lives. Yeah. So let's think about then the, you know, how to reduce stigma. And so we did a paper a couple of years ago um, in The Lancet about all the evidence about how to reduce mental health stigma. And indeed, I'm actually just starting with colleagues at the moment, a new Atlantic Commission on Stigma and Discrimination in Mental Health, which will come out next year. So what we found was pretty clear and that the central idea is that reducing stigma in mental health depends upon social contact. So what does this mean? It means ways in which people who have experience, sometimes called lived experience of mental ill health, have contact with people who don't. And I think in some other areas, um, it may be a similar sort of finding. Now, until the last couple of years, uh, most of the evidence was having direct in-person contact. This is pre-COVID, which meant you might have two uh, consumer service users standing up in front of a class of teachers, children, police officers, judges, doctors, whatever, medical students, and uh, delivering key messages about uh, what is mental ill health. Typically three things. What is it like to have the symptoms of a mental condition? Secondly, what's it like to be in the mental health treatment system? Not all of it good by any means. And thirdly, what's it like when people react usually against you, sometimes with and for you, but sometimes against you when you've got a diagnosis? So they speak about those issues. And if you do that thoughtfully, you can get stigma reduction you know, pre and post that intervention. Now, what's happened in the last two or three years is more and more evidence that you do not necessarily have to be in person or in the same room at the same time. And virtual or remote techniques, especially important now in COVID times, can be as effective as in person. So that means you can do a tape recording of a, you know, audio or video. You can run it on social media and stream it. You can also put together um, plays or different culturally appropriate ways of telling the stories about mental health, ill health. And that can be as effective as somebody standing saying, you know, I've had depression and so on. So that's really interesting evidence we've got coming through. But nearly all the evidence, as very often happens, is from high income countries. So 85% of the world live in low and middle income countries. About 90% of the evidence on stigma reduction is from high income countries. So we're now doing a series of further studies with colleagues in low and with middle-income countries to test out not just exporting uh, a social contact model, but actually very carefully adapting culturally and contextually adapting that to see if it works. Hey everyone, this is Post Editing Drake. I'm glad that Graham made this point because in two episodes from now, we'll actually be having one of those researchers on, Dr. Petra Gronholm, who is currently doing work on how to reduce stigma and discrimination in low-income and middle-income countries. So stay tuned for that and back to Graham. Just to give you one example, yeah. A colleague working in Andhra Pradesh in India called Palab Malik did a very interesting study in 42 villages, highly rural era, area. And the intervention was um, small cards with pictures, not words. Many people have limited literacy and uh, a short play about a family and a person in the family has a mental health problem. And then a discussion of the people in the village square about the play, uh, the whole event supported by the elders or the officials you know, locally. And they found that stigma reduced um, a year later, but they then went back and did something even more important, I think. They went back after two years 
and said, are we still improving or, or you know, losing the game? And the stigma went down further two years after that simple intervention in the village. So we're learning more now that it looks like social contact interventions can work in low and in middle and in high income countries. That's awesome. And in rural areas as well, which is a unique subsample as well, right? Where, you know, the people that you interact with on a day-to-day basis are going to be there forever and you're going to know everybody around you, right? Yeah. yeah. So another area in which we really, I think, don't know nearly enough yet is among groups with multiple disadvantage or discrimination. For example, in your country, in my country, um, people of, um, we say, black uh, ethnic minority groups and African-Americans, whatever the phrase may be, Mm -hmm. and because uh, some groups will have discrimination by virtue of one characteristic and discrimination by virtue of a second characteristic and actually have double or even multiple uh, layers of discrimination. So relatively little research has been done on that to see whether those layers add up or even multiply uh, disadvantage because of those characteristics. Right. Yeah. Like the intersectionality of uh, being a minority with also having a, uh, you know, a mental health disorder can... Exactly. can make their lives yeah. a lot harder than someone yeah. that doesn't have those disadvantages being a, uh, a white individual. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, yeah, a, right. that's really important too, is like, you know, all, with all these, and I think the points that you're making with COVID as well, Graham, were, were well received is that like, um, that it's not the mental health, mental health disorders and, and crises are not happening in isolation in a, you know, in a, in a vacuum here. There's a lot of things that are causing them that are that are that are adding to the stress and adding to these these disorders that need that you can't just you know solve one yeah. part of it and then say okay well you're still you're still poor you're still unable to get a job like your your family your family's still an issue like these yeah. are things that can't just all be solved in one one go right yeah that's exactly right Drake. so i mentioned earlier that covid a type of amplifier when you turns up the volume on pre-existing disadvantage we had some really stark uh, evidence of that just recently we have a group in this country, a governmental thing called the Office of National Statistics. They do censuses and so on. They've done lots of surveys, including surveys about mental health recently. They published just a few weeks ago um, different graphs of gradients, in this case, of people getting depression last year. And some of them show you know, employed versus unemployed, and it goes from you know, 10% up to about 30% depressed. Some of them show housing. If you're, in a, you're living in a house you own or you, you know, you're buying versus insecure accommodation or rented, and they set the same gradient. Some shows what's called socioeconomic position. Some show income. In all cases, this is a really, really steep graph going from about 10% of the population with depression among the most advantaged groups to about 30%. And then if you look at gender, there are further differences. And look at age, so it's younger and women in disadvantaged groups who are even higher, 30 to 40% levels of depression. So it's a very stark reminder that COVID is amplifying pre-existing discrimination patterns and actually making them worse. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, that it makes a lot of sense that these are the people, you know, stress adds so much to all of these disorders no matter what the disorder is i'm sure um you know these life stressors and these the chronic stress associated with you know being low income and and all these other minority status groups are just probably really hard to handle let me say a little bit maybe um about the healthcare practitioner side of things because i think this is a a really in in some countries a really Mm -hmm. big problem now let's imagine that you're well at one extreme maybe intensive care critical care nurse or physiotherapist or doctor, but even if you're just on a general ward, which isn't intensive care. So you're doing your very best to 
save lives. You're seeing many of the people, especially in the first or second waves, dying in front of you, some of whom you've got to know, perhaps before they were ventilated, and their family to some extent. So you're then dealing with you know, probably serial layers of bereavement in relation to the people you've been trying your best to save. You know that the manner of dying through you know, tablet or video links and final messages that is really, really poor. Mm. There's also an issue in some cases called moral hazard. For example, deciding which patients will or won't get the ventilator or the oxygen, which you've never been trained for. You think maybe it's unfair, you should make those decisions, but nobody else is going to do it. And it's a crisis situation. Somebody has to make these awful decisions. And then in some cases, you've had staff having their leave cancelled, their holidays cancelled, doing extra time because of the pressures of demand, doing surges of the waves going up. So it's no wonder that the stress and the pressure and the anguish and the distress is so high. Now, I mentioned a little bit earlier that some surveys are showing that the majority of healthcare staff in critical care settings actually have a mental health problem. Mm-hmm. So you then have the further issue about do they keep soldiering on and make that worse? Do they take time off for their own you know, health and safety. If they do, then there's guilt because the burden on staffing the unit falls upon the few remaining people. So it's a horrible cycles come into play. So all that's by way of saying, I think we really need to look seriously at the psychosocial, about the emotional support of people working in the, the sharpest end of health and in social care and in care home settings as well, because the staff at the moment are not a sustainable resource. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's just there's so many areas that are affected by mental health. I think the the short staffing is just a good example of like how that necessarily adds to the stigma of mental health, but it does it would definitely impact discrimination against somebody that has it um, because they're making your other people's jobs harder, even though they're trying to deal with their mental health. So maybe we can think about another aspect of stigma and COVID, which is against Mm -hmm. different ethnic groups. So from the beginning, um, by virtue of where the virus was first identified, there's been this very uh, negative trend to associate Southeast Asian groups with COVID. And we've heard throughout the last 15 months or so now, examples of hate and hate crimes against Southeast Asian groups. People have never been infected, or even if they have, there's certainly no reason to attack somebody by virtue of ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So there's been this outpouring of popular hate in relation to people who have infection, who may be assumed to be associated with it by virtue of their ethnicity, uh, and also other groups. I mean, sometimes we've heard of people who are nurses working in hospital being evicted and so on because the landlord says, don't bring your virus back here. So all sorts of discrimination. Now, one of the issues that's come up uh, just recently, actually, is the naming of the different variants of the virus. And until now, I mean, often they have a geographical link. So South African, Brazilian, Indian, English, all these, you know, um, Chinese and so on. So just today, I'm very pleased to see the World Health Organization coming up with a new system of alphabetically giving different variants, uh, Greek letters are alpha, beta, epsilon, gamma, and so on, as a way to try and unlink places and also groups of people from places from particular variants. Of course, the variants are global. They speed around the world in no time at all. And in fact, the WHO had a policy, you know, many years ago about naming new conditions and not giving them place names. But it's now taken, I mean, better late than never, but now we've got this new system you know, going alphabetically through mm-hmm. these new variants. And I hope we quickly switch on to that and to unlink 
uh, different variants from anything to do with places and peoples. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, I've the UK variant was a thing was like how we referred to it uh, in here, and we've we've heard of the South African variant. I didn't even think to, that you know that would lead to stigmatization against individuals that are from the UK or South Africa or you know, and it, absolutely, we've seen it especially in Canada um, with minority groups being like you know accused of having more likely more likely to be having COVID yeah. and things like that. And then you can see the translation to mental health. Yeah. So I've come across colleagues who are from different ethnic groups saying that you know, they don't want to go out or they don't want to go out in the daytime or be shouted at or receive abuse and so on. And then you, it's not hard to imagine that will increase your likelihood of becoming Absolutely. depressed and you know, just by virtue of ethnic group, completely uh, wrong forms mm -hmm. of discrimination. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's really unfortunate. And it's, I'm glad that they've changed the names or actively trying to work towards at least reducing the language. I mean, affecting the language that we use, because I think that also does have a big, big impact on how people think about things. Yeah. So we um, I convened a group um, actually uh, middle of last year in the summer of 2020 to look at the issue of stigmatization and COVID. So we did a pretty thorough review of all the literature we could find early on in the pandemic. We just published it recently. And we came out with a number of you know, clear messages, including communicating about the names, but also taking a sort of clear public health messaging approach as well. Because one of the first things that happened here in March was what's called a surge of health anxiety. So the manifestation of that is, you know, hoarding behavior, panic buying, you know, think there's a shortage, you fill up your cellar with bottles of water, whatever. Um, and the result of which, you know, you couldn't buy toilet rolls for some time or you, know, you couldn't get pasta. So again, there's a real um, need to think about the public health messaging that you give in a sort of calm, in a factual way so that it gains and retains the confidence of the population, but also in a way that actually helps people to plan and manage the practical things you have to do, like social isolation. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, an interesting kind of with with COVID, it's probably amplified it as well, but but also just having access to internet and you know the globalization of everything and, and having all this information at our, at our fingertips, being able to self-diagnose. I know as a psych TA, you know, teaching courses in psychology, there's a lot of self-diagnosis going on around there. You know, this armchair psychi psychology going on in psychiatry. Yeah. To a certain extent, I, I see value in it. I see a lot of value in someone trying to reflect on themselves and make sure that, that, that things are okay. And that if they are having problems, you know, that they're being able to kind of reflect on that and maybe go seek help. But I feel a lot of it is yeah. could also be impact could be negatively impacting individuals, or they could be, you know, problematically diagnosing themselves as something that they aren't. What are your opinions on this? You know, this this yeah. goes not just in mental health, but obviously in, in physical health and, and re everything when it comes to to healthcare. Yeah. So I'd think about looking at different steps for people who've got you know difficulties or distress. And the first step isn't anything to do with the health service. It's you're not feeling so good. You talk to people you feel you can talk to, maybe family, friends, neighbors, circles. It could be your sort of choir, your bowling alley team or whoever it is you, you feel you can trust to some extent. So it's natural forms of support and resilience in the community. And then for a lot of people, that will be sufficient maybe to reassure you that, you know, you're going to be tired, but it's not COVID. Right. But then you also may get feedback saying, you know what, you do look much more tired than usual. Um, you, you know, it looks like you've lost weight, you really should consult. So that so level one is community supports, as we as many people would normally do. Because not everybody has community supports, especially in times of being locked down. Mm -hmm. And the second stage then we go to primary care, your family physician and so on. But I'm now including as well ways of getting access to online or maybe you know chat or 
um, social media mediated support. And there are lots of psychological resources you know, now available, at least in high income countries that can actually help you. And one of the roles of that is to distinguish people who have, if you like, normal worries in a pandemic, which would be many and common, from having a diagnosable and treatable condition. So if there's any doubt, I would encourage people to seek help and actually find out if they are actually you know, meeting criteria for a treatable mental, mental health problem. Yeah. And then after the primary care, because they'll be usually um, uh, signposting or offering you psychological support or maybe medication. And the next stage is if you're really quite unwell, you may need to go and see a mental health specialist. And again, that would often be through you know, the gateway of a primary care uh, professional. So there'd be a sort of step by step, but I wouldn't sort of say, you know, you go straight to emergency room. You talk to your friends first of all and get general support and uh, feedback. But if it's actually a crisis, then you need to go straight off and seek professional help and ask the question, you know, do I have a mental health problem or not? And not sit at home, not wait and wait and wait. Now, in, in my country, I'm not sure about your setting in um, BC, mm-hmm. a lot of people will go to their church or faith community, first of all. They may okay. speak to a pastor, speak to a member of the community or congregation. Um, and so we're beginning to do work as well, working with faith communities to be able to understand mental health problems, to be able to signpost that means say, you know, where should you go for help and to get really good forms of communication. We don't have that, especially for what we call um, minoritized or minority ethnic groups, but we need to develop that because the church or the faith community may be the first port of call for people actually seeking help. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good. That's a really good point. I, I think that uh, a lot of the times, or at least the way that I'm seeing, it seems like the trend right now, especially during COVID, is that we're not seeking those supports to get reassurance. First, it's it's usually looking at the symptoms and then diagnosing yourself and then talking about how you have it, not asking for support before it. Uh, I think it's hard to know which information to trust. Um, so. I mean, there's so much material, you know, out on the internet of all sorts, some of it highly, you know, genuine authoritative, some of it not at all. And to some extent, people may, in normal times, have more trust in the sort of medical sourced information, maybe government sourced. But the question of trust has become paramount. So if the government's saying, you know, everybody should have a vaccination, well, you know, do you trust that message? How do you know if that's genuine? Mm-hmm. Even if that applies to everybody, you know, most people, does that apply to you? Might you? Will you be the one who might get some bad side effects and so on? So the question of trust is central at the moment to what information you actually invest your confidence in. I think governments have to really earn and mm. keep re-earning that trust of the, the population. Yeah, yeah. The tri- I, I really appreciate that you brought up the idea of trust because I think that trust in science as well is is something that's being questioned a lot, uh, at least within the North American Western culture. It seems like there's a lot of distrust when it comes to, first off, government authority, but also scientific authority and, and what really counts as a reliable source. I know. Uh, and it's hard for us as researchers and scientists. Yeah. So I, I mean, all of us face this question. So I um, reflected on how I approach the question about whether to get a vaccine or not. And I spend most of my time doing research and I mm-hmm. put a lot of trust in the written word uh, of scientific papers. Um, a lot of people would disregard that and you trust, you know, a trusted friend or, you know, a senior mm-hmm. figure in, uh, in an organization or a group they, they feel affiliated with. So I find myself deliberately waiting until I saw uh, peer-reviewed, not preprints, but peer-reviewed and published papers of the first vaccinations as they came through. And then I had a really close look at those studies. 
um, because I run randomized controlled trials myself. And I wanted to see, are these well-conducted studies? Do I actually think this is good, strong data to guide me on an important question, whether to let somebody inject something you know, into me? And I saw some of the first papers yep. and the results were pretty good. And many of the vaccination results coming through in this last sort of six months or so have been not just good, but surprisingly good for their protection effect and reduction of transmission. Mm -hmm. And then I decided on the basis of that mm -hmm. um, to go ahead and be vaccinated. But I know other people would have completely different bases on which to make a judgment about whether they would trust that happening, a vaccination mm -hmm. or not. And we have to have a range of information flows according to the information that people need and find salience with. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, that's amazing that we can do that. And, and your point's completely valid is that not everybody has the ability to read scientific literature. First off, it's, you know, it's you have to be trained to understand the jargon that's being used in the, that literature. Uh, and then that then that becomes and, and even even being able to have access to those papers as well is another, you know, uh, can be another road bump as well. So that's where it's it does become who do you trust or who are you willing to talk, to listen to whenever they're talking about, you know, disseminating these results and, and the science communication behind that. So it's it's not it's not an easy time to be, you know, accessing information because you can get both sides of the information uh, within the same Google search. Uh, and yeah. often that's usually what it boils down to. And, you know, communicating some of these issues is, is really quite difficult to do well. So you may say, well, some of the vaccinations do have a really rare risk of blood clots, for example. But in fact, if you don't get that vaccination, your risk of blood clots is even greater. So sometimes sort of imagery or analogy can help. So I saw one program saying, you know, the risk of these blood clots is much less than being killed by lightning. Another one said the risk of getting a, a fatal reaction like this from these vaccinations is less than dying by being kicked by a donkey. <laughs> so sometimes those sort of, you know, even slightly humorous, but some of those, those analogies, those comparisons can actually put it in context. Mm, yes, absolutely. I mean, the numbers can kind of lose their significance at some point whenever you're having so many statistics and numbers being thrown at you, right? And you're getting these percentages. Any percent above zero can, can be alarming at some point, right? Um, so so whenever you have those comparisons, I think those, they really do help. Yeah, that's right. Um, Graham, this has been wonderful. I have uh, just to kind of wrap up because there's so much we talked about and there's so much we could talk about. You're a wealth of information. Um, yeah. This has been really enjoyable. Um, are there any like significant, we've talked a lot about this too, um, but are there any significant myths or misconceptions that maybe you want to double back on and you want to talk about um, because of, you know, health stigmatization, discrimination, there's so much when it comes to mental health. Are there any like that you really want to double back on or even introduce now that you think should, yeah. people should be aware of? Uh, and maybe okay. dismiss, dismiss. So let me wrap up with a few key messages here. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, many people I think watching or listening may not have a lot of experience with the mental health um, sector, if you like. So just a few key bullet points. We talked about earlier about just how common mental health problems are. So this year, about a quarter of us will have such a difficulty in our lifetimes, about a half. And three quarter of us will know somebody in our family with such a problem. So this is, you know, it affects all of us virtually in different ways. Secondly, one of the other myths is that, well, you know what, we can't do much about it. Well, that's wrong. There's a vast amount of evidence now that using psychological or using social or using drug pharmacological interventions can treat most conditions really well. And the strength of the evidence for those treatments is as good as you'd find in cardiology or rheumatology or many other physical areas of medicine. Third is the question about whether you can ever fully recover. 
So I mentioned a little bit earlier about Naomi Osaka. Well, let's take an analogy, Serena Williams. So she was open about having had a period of depression herself. And of course, she's one of the greatest ever you know, female, well, one of the greatest ever tennis players. And what happened is that she lost a mm. sister who was killed in a drive-by shooting incident. I think it was in Los Angeles. And a little bit later, she spoke about her depression following that. Now, after that time, she didn't just recover a bit. She recovered completely and went on to be you know, champion of different Grand Slams again. So another key message is many people do recover and do recover completely, indeed, as my mother did when she was depressed from periods of ill health. I think the fourth key point is this, is that you think you or a friend or a member of your family, or maybe a colleague at work, somebody you know, may have a mental health problem. Do encourage them to seek help because treatment in many cases is available, will be accessible, and you can actually accelerate people recovering if they're getting the right help at the right time. Awesome. I mean, really being cognizant, and, and I think the statistic of you know three quarters of people will know somebody that has a disease, uh, disorder, that means that you there's three quarters of people out there that can, can be conscious of this and help others that are going through these things and be yeah. that support for them. Yeah. So the idea, just to wrap up, Drake, was the idea I talked about social contact. That means talking about it. So mm -hmm. if you have a problem, try and talk to somebody a little bit and then put another toe in the water. If you're with somebody you think may have mental health difficulties, do talk. So let's nail down a couple of other myths. One is that, you know, if somebody is depressed, you don't talk to them because it makes you depressed. It's like an infection that jumps at you. Well, that's not true. Two is you think somebody may be mm -hmm. seriously unwell and thinking about hurting themselves, maybe even taking their own life. Do talk about it. You do not trigger suicide by asking somebody about it. Quite the opposite. You can actually help the person to talk and then help that person to get help. So talking, talking, talking is one of my key messages today. Yeah, absolutely. A really good point. I, I do appreciate the point as well about, uh, you know, suicidality. I think, uh, you know, I was trained when, to, to address this when I worked for a crisis line. And, and, the, and the fact is they ask you to outwardly ask if they're thinking about, you know, committing suicide yeah. because it's so... Yeah important to address it uh, and not yeah. avoid it yeah yeah so that's a really really good tidbit for, for people that aren't trained that you know that aren't trained for that and, and haven't really known that it's it's very common to avoid that just outwardly asking and it's because it's uncomfortable uh, and you're not yeah. you don't want to trigger anything but it's it's the opposite completely the opposite yeah. so drake i summarize by saying it's time to talk yes Absolutely. It's definitely time to talk and talk more and more and more uh, with people as restrictions, yeah. hopefully sometime soon, uh, go away. We'll also be able to talk in person, thankfully. Um, so this has been wonderful, Graham. I, I, I think I think that our listeners have learned so much from you. Uh, I'm stoked to do more episodes on mental health and access to mental health because this has been really, really enjoyable. Thank you so much for coming on. Great to talk to you, Drake. All the best. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for staying till the end of the episode. That is it for today. Next episode is going to be during Shark Week, and we have Dr. David Schiffman on to talk about sharks, marine biology, and conservation. Stay tuned for that. You're going to love it. Cheers. Cheers.